This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. By words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us, we here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Pastor Willie Grills, here as always with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi and our special guest, Pastor Adam Kuntz. Continuing our discussion of George Henry Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. How's it going, guys? It's going great. Thanks for having me on again. I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation, so we can move right into it. Yeah, let's uh, let's pick up a little bit where we left off, kind of a recap. Uh, we were talking about Gerberding as a man. Uh, where did he pastor again and when? He pastored, first of all, in his native city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then Ohio, and then more broadly in Illinois, uh, Minnesota, the Dakotas, all then known as the Northwest very broadly. And this is from 1876. I believe he dies in the 1920s or 30s, maybe the very end of the 20s. So he has a fairly long career. He's also a seminary professor and sort of an equivalent of a district president at various times. He holds a lot of different roles in the church as the West especially is opening up. Gerberding is particularly um, important for us because he is a profound man of God, he is a Lutheran, and he is a true American, which is significant for understanding Gerberding. It very much is. He insists that the Lutheran Church has to succeed in America, and that there are ways of doing that, that hitherto, as he's writing, the first edition of The Lutheran Pastor comes out in 1902 goes through five editions before he dies. As he's writing, he is aware that the Lutheran Church has massive potential, but somehow is not succeeding to the degree that it should. And so in order to succeed in America, it has to be much more aggressive and entrepreneurial than it has otherwise been. So today, the task then for us is to talk about uh, the work of the pastor proper. And we do have a technical term for that. And what would that be, my my German expert friend? <laughs> uh, Gerberding, ironically, after all of this talk <laughs> about being a true American and an ardent American, uh, insisting that English be used, goes on to use the German word Seelsorge, the, the care of souls for the various duties of the minister, when in, in a perfectly good English phrase, the cure of souls, from which especially the Anglican Church gets the term curate, exists, but he does not use cure of souls. And so there, there's a kind of ironic ambivalence about that. The very one who is trying to be most American fails to fully indigenize linguistically. But, you know, let's not rag <laughs> on him too hard. I'm, I'm fairly partial to my fellow native Pennsylvanian, but yeah, the irony the irony of Zelzoga stands. Well, you know, I mean, there's a heavy dose of irony here too, because we're, we spend a, uh, you know, plenty of time talking about the importance of pestering in English, and uh, literally zero of my ministry is in English at this point. So, you know, a scoop from column A, a little bit from column B, <laughs> it's just the way it goes. It's a circle. It's a circle. <laughs> Well, I'm 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 in I'm in a firmly English speaking context in the English district of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but ironically, um I have helped to continue a twice yearly German services at a church nearby. So we're all we're all guilty. Uh no one no one is perfectly clean <laughs> right. here. So 
Well, <laughs> speak for yourself. I, I serve a congregation that spoke English oh, wow. from the I beginning. Yeah. So <laughs> go America. The question is how yeah, well. It's okay, guys. All right, we all, let's, every, let's everyone yeah. marched to some degree. It's okay. <laughs> Moving on. So let's talk about uh, Zale Zorga or the cure of souls here uh particularly let's the, do cure of souls. let's do that let's, let's do cure. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah all right so <laughs> first principle from gerberding is the foundation for the cure of souls is found where the foundation is in the word and this is a note that is maybe sounded less often uh today in the lutheran church than it was in gerberding's day uh for him it's perfectly obvious that the means for the lutheran pastor's work is really the bible yeah let's let's take a minute there what, what let's define the bible just for just for fun what's the bible for gerberding <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah, the 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 Bible are the sixty six inspired books. He does not mention uh, any of the sort of scholastic distinctions between books that were disputed and books that were undisputed in the New Testament that are sometimes popular within uh, the discourse of the German speaking synods. He presumes that the Bible is sixty six inspired books of Old and New Testaments together. And it is the means by which the Lutheran pastor works. So if you remember last time when we talked about the pastor's library um, and his study hours, that is devoted really to knowing the Bible extremely well, such that the books that he owns that are not the Bible are books generally about the Bible to help him understand the Bible better. And I know that this sounds obvious, but the reason that we're going over it is because There are so many books that are not the Bible with which pastors occupy themselves and so many words that are spoken and, if you will, in a colloquial phrase, memes that are distributed that are not the Bible. When you begin to feed yourself primarily upon theological content that is not biblical, you are so much in danger, if you know anything about church history, of forgetting things of being fed on stale bread, that Gerberding's note about the Bible being the primary source for the church's life and for the minister's work, I think really can't be sounded too often. I mean, this is the church in which, you know, Luther, as he's nearing the end of his life and thinking about collected editions in his own lifetime of his writings, is saying, you know, the the great danger in reading my work is going to be that you're going to return to the darkness of the papacy. So please forget pretty much everything I've written, lest you forget to read the scriptures. So, I mean, I think in Gerberding's day, this was a little more obvious with massive access to other pastors' thoughts and all the marvelous printing, um, especially of theological works in English that goes on. It's really easy to spend more time reading about the Bible than we do reading the Bible. Um, so that that's why we're kind of stressing this yeah, tonight. And, you know, again, like you say, um, once one, you know, you, you get used to reading these other books, but then you go back to the scriptures and you see really how stale all of the other works are and how they pale in comparison to the unadulterated word. Yeah, they are. And I, there's there's nothing else that when you consume it tastes like honey. You know, when you consume it is a refreshing drink for the soul. I mean, there's really nothing else that compares such that when you're talking about reading some theologian who is not the Holy Spirit, 
you're always talking about something that is, you know, uh, <laughs> what was baked yesterday and you get it basically for free from the bakery versus uh, what is freshly baked and comes steaming and delicious to your table. So, um, Reverend really Adam Coons, all, all non-biblical theological works are day-old bread. Yeah, right they, I mean, they, <laughs> they, they are. I'm, I'm fine with running with that, <laughs> behind that statement. Yeah, and it's and it's you know today it's tremendous because often too we we tend to equate the reading of the scriptures or the study of the scriptures with something like a word study or some kind of historical study when really we can enjoy the word and and partake of the word for its own sake and you know one of the important things that come out of the reformation is the scripture in the vernacular um that's accessible to functionally any christian yeah, and and you know it's it's sadly uh, novel and and amazing to people when you tell them you know you don't just have to read a chapter you could sit down and read a whole major prophet you could sit down and read a gospel in the time that it takes you to you know Netflix binge you could have read two gospels um, it, it's not that hard and the more that you read uh, not only the more you know in an intellectual sense but the more that your whole way of life is shaped by the scriptures in a way that is profound and we are otherwise letting occur to us through what um, degeneracy from Hollywood or whatever other source it may be would be shaping us. Instead, we're letting the scriptures, we're letting the Holy Spirit shape us. So Gerberding assumes, and I think that we we really want to stress, that this is normal for Christians, and this is certainly normal for Christian ministers, that the scriptures are really their primary lens upon reality, um, and that they're devoting plenty of time to making sure that that lens is clear and well-polished. Yeah, and you know, and at the same time, with his stress upon reading the scriptures, he also stresses avoiding um, impure materials, or, or I should say, um, heterodox materials. You know, impure has a different, a bit of a different context there. But or any material that would that would draw away from uh, the truth is taught by the Lutheran Church. Yeah, because he assumes that if you're reading the Bible, what you will get to is being a Lutheran. He, that's how confident he is in Lutheranism, that Lutheranism does not consist in the propagation of a kind of sectarian little world where you're not allowed to read certain things, but that because you're reading the Bible, if you read anything that is not the Bible, uh, that is theological, it should be Lutheran, but that's simply because that will accord with what you read in the Bible. And if you're reading non-Lutheran theological materials, that will not be in accord with what you have learned from the scriptures. So he's very he's very adamant that when you read non-biblical materials, they should be in accord with and generally explicitly from a confessional Lutheran perspective, because that is biblical Christianity, is simply being a confessional Lutheran. Right, right. I think it's worth pointing out at this point, maybe, that we we aren't saying that, you know, you should read the Bible because Gerberding told you to, because <laughs> that would be the basically the same mistake that he's trying to avoid. Now, I mean, his point is well worth making, and he can w- teach us something, you know, very well, just like any of these other teachers can. But it's only in the word that, as as he says, you know, that will actually come to, to know the truth, not through Gerberding, not through Luther, but through the word. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. And with all that said, you know, how does one cultivate their um, private religion? It begins or family religion. It begins with the scriptures and it begins in the home. 
um, or at least it's fostered in the home and nurtured in the home, that our hearing and receiving of the word of God is not meant for just an hour on Sunday, but it's meant uh, to be a daily bread. Yeah, it it has to be. And if it's not, you really do not have anything like the vitality in the practice of your religion that you should have as a Christian, especially with the riches that are available to you since, you know, the Reformation. I mean, I, I think I, I think I joked once with Zelwyn that his religion is only really available to him since the advent of printing. But I mean, you know. <laughs> but um Fair. Yeah, but I mean, that, you know, to be said in favor of printing is that you have God's word available to you all the time and people just neglect it or they're very concerned to, you know, I can't do home devotions because I don't know what to do. Just read a chapter of the Bible. You know, you you can do that. I do that with, you know, a three-year-old listens to a chapter of the Bible, and then you can explain it for various ages in the household. But it's really not that complex, and they're feeding directly upon what is not stale, what is sweet, what is wholesome, what is good for the soul. So um, these things can be done really pretty easily, and, and, and Gerberding sees it as absolutely essential that the pastor is fostering this family or, or home religion, as he calls it, um, within the congregation. And, you know, that, that applies, this goes back um, a bit to what we talked about, um, the conduct of the pastor in the previous uh, discussion of this, that that everything, you know, begins in the home, that, that private religion that one has. Uh, so the pastor's, you know, begins with prayer for his flock, but then his study of the scripture is for his own personal benefit, but also for the benefit of those he serves. Again, another obvious thing that probably shouldn't need to be said, and yet here we are, that the pastor who isn't equipped and who isn't thoroughly knowledgeable in the word uh, simply has no ammunition. Uh, his guns are dry. The pastor has to continually be going back to to that fountain source of every blessing. You know, without it, what what is a pastor left with but his own cleverness or or the works of men? And then maybe that's worth pointing out, too, with like education of pastors as well. Sometimes we think, you know, oh, well, ministers are just being educated for their own sake so that they learn something. Well, no, that's not the case. They're actually being educated for the sake of the people they will serve. And so we don't want to think of a pastor's devotion or even a pastor's home life as being just his own soul, although it is, but also so that he can more effectively serve those uh, for whom he has been set over. So then, all that in mind, Scripture at the center, everything grounded in the Word, and the Word of God is the only means, you know, or is the only source, you know, the all of the, the means of grace flow from the Scriptures, flow from the Word of God. What is the Christian then to do uh, with his Christian life or his approach to worship or devotion? He is supposed to understand that at the center of worship is most of all the preaching of the scriptures. Gerberding identifies the Reformation explicitly as a revival of preaching. And I think something that he says that may be surprising to both modern pastors and modern pew sitters is that he insists that there be no reading of sermons, that sermons not be read that they be proclaimed instead. And the reason I think this is even possible is because if you know enough of Scripture and you believe what you're saying, the idea that you would deliver 
what you know and what you're saying in a fluid, fluent style um, in a way that is convicting to your hearers should be not that hard to achieve. He sees the reading of sermons as a sign that the minister is either unprepared and therefore his hearers really cannot be expected to listen to what he does not care about, or the minister is insufficiently instructed in the word, and therefore he needs that education in order to serve his people better, because once he gets that education, he will be able to proclaim the word with conviction in a natural style, in a way that one man would speak to another, or a man would speak to a crowd about an urgent matter, right? I mean, if your house is if your house is burning down and the firemen arrive outside, you don't need notes to tell them what's going on or, or what to do or, you know, where the little girl is in her bedroom or something. You you know what you want to say and you know that it's urgent that you convey the message. Right. For, for Gerberding, it's part of being ready in season and out of season. That's right. And the scriptures make you a ready and full man. And then the proclamation of God's word within the worship service comes very much at the center. I mean, there are hints of this, I think. I, I believe it's in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession that it talks about good, clear sermons, practical sermons hold an audience. But this is really, I think, seen uh, most in the missionary work that the Lutheran Church carries on in America uh, on the frontier as it expands westward, uh, in which Gerberding is very much involved, where you're bona fides in a religious context where people don't have to go to your church, as in a state church situation. Your bona fides are shown by the fact that you can preach convincingly about what you're saying, and that that is absolutely essential in a religious landscape in which you have no ultimately ancestral claim upon anybody and certainly no legal or financial claim upon them as in a you know tax-supported state church system, you must be known and you must hold attention via your proclamation. Right. And preaching being um, the chief of the public acts of the minister and really at the heart of the Reformation here. Even for Luther, that's true. The chief means of grace is preaching. Yeah, it is. It, and I think, I think that something that Gerberding is aware of, and I've seen this certainly in other American Lutherans of, of a variety of synods, is that there are things that Luther thinks of or that occur to him, which simply cannot be worked out in the circumstances of his time and place, but which become very fruitful, like his notion of the royal priesthood of all believers, or his notion of the centrality of preaching uh, for the ministerial task. These things are worked out in a kind of freedom in America that is simply not available to him um, in a state church system. So, I, I mean, I personally find that both then in Gerberding's time and in my own to be exhilarating. I mean, it's it's a lot more chaotic than just knowing <laughs> that 4,000 people who live within a five-mile radius of you all have to belong to your church. <laughs> right, and their tax records will be checked. That that's right, and and it, if you, I guess, if you have a certain sort of like extremely cautious personality, that would be really comforting, just to know that they have to belong to you. I guess at least as long as the king is also a Lutheran. But the idea that the four thousand people closest to you geographically, you have no other claim on them other than what you can convey 
as you proclaim God's word, seems to me to be both exhilarating and apostolic, because that's really the only claim that the apostles have on their world is their proclamation of the gospel. So to me, there's a great freedom in that, um, a freedom from the need to claim them in any kind of coercive way, whether financial or actually penal. Um, If you don't go to church, you could go to jail. So I I find it really exhilarating. Yeah, it's exhilarating and it's daunting. And yet the word of God is sufficient for the work and God will equip uh, his ministers to carry out the task. And that's the thing, you know, we oftentimes, it's really popular to really slam on America and Americanism and everything, but we forget we are at a great benefit here in many ways. There are unique challenges to live in our system and to live in our in our great nation here, but there are still tremendous opportunities that we have, you know, if we have the right, I won't say entrepreneurial spirit, but we'll just say the right spirit and leave it at that. <laughs> and with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history, www.wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast, Pastor Grills, Pastor Heidi, and Pastor Kuntz here, talking about Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. We just wrapped up talking about preaching for a little bit. One of the great concerns for Gerberding in church life is irreverence. And what would he mean by that? He means a spirit in which the church conducts its activities where everything is sort of a joke and light is made of God's word. Off-color jokes are okay. Stuff that really he finds to be prevalent among groups, um, he calls them sects, that identify the work of the church as basically pretty much just a business, and therefore you can make light of the product if it sells more of the product. You can also use methods that are not, strictly speaking, Christian or don't proceed from a Christian spirit. So this would be like you know, funding a church through sales of something uh, generally is going to be a problem for Gerberding because it, it it's just a way of doing church, which is the world's way uh, rather than... Yes, the stereotypical chicken dinner, right? Yeah, the chicken dinner. The chicken supper. Yeah, you're just, you're just selling tickets because you don't really have cheerful givers. Um, so you're just selling a bunch of stuff because you don't have people who are giving sacrificially as Christ gave. So that that's that's a big concern for him. He sees it as a problem, especially for English-speaking churches, because they're living in a religious milieu that is not dominated by Lutherans and therefore is very open to influence from churches that have a very different understanding of God's Word. Sure, and it, it kind of ties back into our discussion of, of the church in America, where everything is 100% self-supporting for all intents and purposes. Um, there is no state. There is no state benefit that goes to the church, for example. No, not at all. 
And yet for Gerberding, that's not a license to debase the church. No, no, it can't be. And I, I, th- I think that one of his really big concerns is that the church would be overly influenced by business and businessmen's ways of doing things. And that, that may seem a little contradictory to some listeners because we kind of backed off of the term entrepreneurial. You know, if you think back to the last podcast, he wants the pastor to be a self-starter, to be seeking out opportunities, to be visiting new people, people who are not currently believers. Uh, He wants the pastor out there and looking to add to the church's numbers. But that that doesn't mean that the pastor is being dishonest or that he is, as St. Paul, you know, describes his opponents in Second Corinthians as they're not peddlers of God's word. They are proclaiming God's word. So he wants proclaimers, not peddlers, because peddlers are all over the place in American culture, both in Gerberding's time and in our own. Absolutely. So so what would reverence look like for Gerberding then, Adam? Reverence looks like Christians giving not, you know, to sell tickets to a chicken dinner but giving sacrificially to further the mission. Reverence looks like the pastor preaching a sermon, which is God's word, which is a proclamation of the law and the gospel, rather than, you know, having a sermon that's basically just, you know, five illustrations linked together by two, you know, little Johnny stories finishing with, you know, a cute poem. So reverence is a general approach to the life of the church in all her activities which should define a church like the Lutheran church that takes God's word utterly seriously because it is the means of spiritual life. Right, absolutely. Now, one of the interesting things uh, that we have to talk about with Gerberding, and we'd be remiss if we didn't, is the lodge and lodgery. Yeah, lodgery is not a term that a lot of people use anymore. Uh, So that, for Gerberding, is the worldview of the lodge. And by the lodge, he means primarily Freemasonry, but this would also include all the multitude of fraternal organizations that have some sort of religious component to them. So Gerberding is not against lodges simply because they are secret. He does not believe that secrecy is is in and of itself sinful. His issue with the lodge isn't even that they do charitable works in the community or that the Shriners have hospitals for childhood burn victims. I mean, really, it, it's very hard to make a you know strong case against uh, you know helping burn victims. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody here wants to do it. I'm not equipped to do that, I, I re- and I'm not inclined to do that. His issue with the Lodge is really its worldview. And it's interesting that he, before he begins to say, how do you change a congregation, um, of which there are still many in certain parts of the country, and in which, in his time, all over the country, you would find Lutheran congregations in which most of the men would, by virtue of being successful men within their community, they would have to be lodge members of one kind or another. How do you go about telling people that this is wrong and changing their hearts and minds on this? Gerberding is very quick to say, I don't do what the Missouri Synod does. And this is very interesting, not just historically, but also pastorally, because he identifies the Missouri Synod's opposition to the lodge as good and fervent, but maybe too hasty, because he says what they'll do is they'll say you can't you can't 
you can't be a Christian, you can't be a member, you can't come to communion until you forsake the lodge entirely right away, and then we'll take you in, right? And I don't, I, I'm not qualified to say, oh, that that was the method of every Missouri Synod congregation across the country. But that's what he identifies with the Missouri Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's a difficult thing for us to really fathom because for the most part, we don't see the influence of the lodge like we used to in most parts of the country. However, there was a time where pretty much universally it was a strong pillar of the community in nearly every um, in nearly every neighborhood. You know, there there is tremendous pressure when it comes to correcting the lodge's teachings or rejecting the lodge's teachings. To be more clear, there, and at the same time, understanding in our day why it would even matter, uh, why 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 it would even be a discussion. Yeah, and he he says that the vast majority of lodge members, in his experience, are not aware that Freemasonry teaches a kind of anti-Christian deism, an idea that all religions are basically the same, which denies the sole, exclusive, saving power of the Lord Jesus, which denies that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life that sinners have. He's the only name by which men can be saved. Right. And well, and it's an interesting thing because it's really more a reflection upon the failure of pastors to <clears throat> rightly teach the faith that lodge members would be sitting in churches week in and week out and not recognize these things when they see them. Uh, many lodge members are, are really going to equate their membership in the lodge with Christianity. They're going to see no functional difference between their understanding of Christianity and what is taught according to the teachings of the lodge. And that, that, that's really a move that I love in Gerberding when he talks about this. He says their conscience is not informed on this because, as you just said, you know, th- they believe that there's, nothing, that there's nothing unchristian or anti-Christian about the Lodge's teachings because in their experience, there's never been a conflict. So they both are maybe under-informed as Christians and under-informed as Masons. They know neither the theology of the Christian church nor the theology of the lodge, because if they knew both of those things sufficiently well, they would see the conflict right away. Right. So uh, he's very alive to that. And that's why he recommends informing consciences through proclamation of the word, through teaching. I don't want to use the word catechesis because he doesn't use that word very much himself. And it just sounds like it takes place in like a classroom setting. <laughs> he's basically saying you need to tell people what the issue is before you begin to punish them for something of which they are not aware. That, that to me, is a very interesting point, whether you're a pastor or a parent or whatever it may be. You know, can you punish them for something that they had no idea of before you showed up? And, and, that, and that's why he takes the approach, you know, you gradually get this out of your congregation rather than doing sort of slash and burn as soon as you arrive. Right, and and to be sure, he's not affirming what is taught in the lodge, nor will we affirm that. Not, it's, not at all, not at all, right. because he could have done that. Because half of his church, the general synod, the church in which he grows up, and in which by the time you know the edition that I'm using, by the time it's printed, the general synod and the general council in which he ministered have come together, and the general council was at least on paper, against the Lodge. And the General Synod, at least on paper, was not against the Lodge. And in fact, you would find you know, Lutheran pastors from the General Synod as high-ranking Masons in certain places. He could have just shut up about this and said nothing and been totally uncontroversial, but he wasn't. 
He said, this is wrong. It's prevalent. It needs to be dealt with. All he's saying is it needs to be dealt with in a certain way that that respects you know, the facts on the ground rather than just saying, okay, this is an obvious category error. Let's delete everybody who is committing this category error, which they're not even aware is an error, you know? So it's, it's, it's an interesting approach. I, I wish I knew more about how the Missouri Senate did handle these things. Um, I have some sense that it varied from, from region to region, but, you know, I don't want to go on record as saying, saying that you know, speaking what I don't know. Now, one of the really unique things about Gerberding is how he understands church government, which will be really rather foreign to um, to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, it will be because it's a system of church government, which I think largely passes out of existence in the Lutheran church. It's found most often at this point in American evangelicalism, but it was the predominant form of church government in Gerberding's time within Eastern Lutheranism. So populations that are, you know, colonial uh, Lutheran populations rather than 19th century immigrants. Within that polity, the pastor is, by virtue of being the pastor, also the president of the congregation. So he has primary responsibility not only for preaching, administering the sacraments, things like that. He also has primary responsibility for the financial health, the administrative details of the congregation by virtue of being the pastor. I personally believe that this is sort of a more natural thing, especially when the pastor is usually throughout the history of American Lutheranism from colonial times down to today, is usually the only full-time employee of the congregation. So he has a massive stake in how the congregation is run. And in a church government system similar to what the Missouri Synod has always had, or what at this point the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has, which it took over from the Midwestern components of its you know predecessor bodies, the pastor is an employee of the congregation, but has relatively little constitutional voice in how the congregation is run. It's hard, I think, within that polity not to have the pastor end up as a hireling, not to have the pastor treated as you know the servant of the congregation, not in a biblical sense of ministering to them, but in a very unbiblical sense of being at their beck and call, and most of all, at their mercy. In Gerberding's polity, he's presuming, because it's all that he knows, that the pastor has the chief role in running the congregation, both in temporal and in spiritual matters. Yeah, um, for him, this this idea is just a natural outgrowth of his understanding of of care for souls or cure for souls. So he is ultimately responsible for all of his baptized members. That's right, and I think this makes sense if you think about it in terms of stewardship. That the stuff in the church, the copier, the building, you know, the parking. I'm I'm getting obviously very contemporary. You know, the internet speed, all of these things. They don't exist simply for their own sake. They exist for the mission of the church, of which the pastor is always the chief officer and the chief authority in how that mission is conducted and how it's carried out. I think it's very natural that the pastor would therefore be in charge of stewarding 
the material portions of the church's uh, holdings for the sake of that very spiritual mission. It makes all kinds of sense to me. It seems to have worked very well for Gerberding. He never says, oh, I have too much to think about. You know, oh, I have too much to, you know, I'm tired of worrying about whether or not people are, you know, welcomed well when they show up at the church. He's thinking about these things and and he's thinking about them in terms of the mission he's carrying out. And, you know, I I know I keep bringing up his autobiography, but it's just so rich. Um, When he arrives in Ohio at this four-point parish that he takes after leaving Pittsburgh, you know, the one congregation has never held weekly services because they don't have to. And he makes sure that the bell is going to be in working order. Um, That's one of his first big concerns is the bell so that they can call people to worship every Sunday because he says, this is what we need to do. We're Christians. I think he sees it as just all part of achieving the mission of the church. Well, now, if I was going to speak as maybe your average American, how would you have, how would Gerberding avoid the charge of just having too much power? You know, because this is the land of limited power, of, you know, separation of powers, you know, limited government, that sort of thing. How would he avoid such a charge? Well, let's, let's start with the irony first of the people who have been Americans since before America existed being accused of being insufficiently American by 19th century immigrants. <laughs> I mean, there's that irony, but it, it's it's kind of a fascinating thing, right? That America just is like suspicion of all power. You know, maybe that's true. I, I, I'm certainly tracking with what you're saying about Gerberding. I think you make some great points. I'm just trying to think of like, you know, what would be some possible objections to what he's saying? Yeah, they're going to say, yeah, something like uh, pastor is tyrant or conflicts of interest or or different spheres, uh, vocational spheres or something. Yeah, like that. and I think all of those models and I think that a lot of the debates about this within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, they assume something that is fundamentally wrong for Christians to assume, which is that the minister is there as a person who is exercising power. The minister is there as a steward of God's mysteries, which means not only the sacraments, but simply the revelation of God's will in Jesus Christ. All Christians are stewards. If we're all stewards, what we're simply doing when we're letting the pastor, when we're having the pastor make decisions about things like what color will the doors be painted or who's going to be on the team to welcome people to church, what we're doing there is we're simply saying, this is the guy who's in charge of the mission of which we're all stewards. He's the chief steward. And so he should be in charge of how that stewardship is going to be carried out in this place for the sake of the gospel. It's not a power relationship. If I wanted power, I would become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, not a minister of the gospel, right? I have come not to be served, but to serve, right? So I think that the the deeper issue here is actually how different Lutheran churches, both congregations and church bodies, think about power. If you assume that everything is about power, it's just like a it's just like a marriage. If you think that the husband is the head of the household so he can have his own way in everything, of course there will be constant suspicion and anger and fighting, especially over rank, decision-making authority, who gets to manage the money, all that kind of thing. If you assume that the husband is the head of the household and the pastor is the head of the church, the president of the church council even, for the sake of carrying out Christ's love and carrying out his God-given role, then it's not going to be an issue of constant suspicion 
or worrying about who has what power, right? I think it's simply the experience of distrust, either in a marriage or in a congregation or in a church body that causes people to structure massive amounts of their lives around power struggles, I think, as many churches have and do to this day. I mean, I could I could go on about this at some length. I think that something that Gerberding doesn't talk a lot about um, in the failure to carry out the mission and the relative lack of success of the Lutheran Church is this issue of church government and stewardship. But I would say next to the notion of not having the right men, this is right up there. Because if you're constantly arguing with each other about who's in charge, you certainly will not be converting people. You can't go if you're always complaining about who's going to be in charge of the building you're leaving to go on the mission. You're still you're just going to be stuck in the building arguing with each other about who's in charge of changing the light bulbs. So I think that this is, you know, this is more of a point for our own day. Gerberding isn't worried about it because his church government is already structured this way. But I think it is counterproductive to have church government be an issue of striving about power with each other. I don't know if it's avoidable, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Good stuff. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what the pastor's work looks like, uh, how he is responsible to his baptized membership. We'll be back with more on the work of the Lutheran pastor after this. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. We are back talking about the work of the Lutheran pastor, in particular, as espoused by George Henry Gerberding and his work, the Lutheran pastor. So we've been talking about Zalesorga, the cure of souls. Now let's talk a little bit about how the pastor cares for souls. What do, what do his responsibilities look like? What are, what are his duties? His major duty is structured by his day. So in the morning, he's going to be studying the Word. And in the afternoon and the evenings, primarily for Gerberding, he's going to be proclaiming the word. So for Gerberding, the big word is visitation, which is a word that we associate with shut in. uh, visiting this, this. Yeah, shut-ins. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to see people who otherwise can't come to church. That is one class among numerous classes that he discusses specifically but he says also the pastor has a general duty to be visiting all members, uh, even if they're at church, you know, seven days a week. He should still visit them in their homes or their places of business. And he's doing that because that's the way that he can know their lives and know their souls and know their struggles and all the rest of it. Otherwise, he's not really going to know them. Right, right. And, and that's something we need to, we need to take a, a minute to unpack this because it is really something that has fallen by the wayside as far as pastoral care goes in a lot of circumstances. Shut-in visits, hospital visits, deathbed, uh, births, house blessings, whatever, these sort of extenuating events are perfectly natural. Everybody accepts that. 
people really balk at the pastor coming around the home without what they would consider good reason. Part of it is, is because we're so insular and people get done with work and they just want to shut the door and be left alone. Uh, the other part is, is it's seen as intrusive. It's somehow, it's not the pastor's business, how I live or, or what's going on. It's a hard pill for many laymen to swallow. And it's also a hard pill for pastors to swallow that part of their duty is to visit and even examine. Yeah, to be involved with them. I think I think the notion that the pastor is somehow being intrusive if he wants to know uh, how it is with your soul really defeats his job from the outset. If your notion of being a Christian is that you have your own private little world that you live in and you are accountable to nobody, then you don't really need a pastor uh, because a pastor is guiding your soul. And therefore, he has to know it. So this is the same thing as a doctor saying, well, doctors need to examine their patients or an accountant saying accountants need to look over their clients' financial records. In the same way, a pastor has to know souls because it's his business. It's what he works with and works in. If he doesn't do this, he really is not able to do much of his job. Um, There's only so much that public things like the proclamation of the word can do without the particular application that's achieved in visitation. Well, and it's funny, um, for all of our hurrahing over individualism and that sort of thing, when it comes to the church, a lot of people would rather just be seen as um, anonymous or just one of the crowd. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's, a lot of problems that the Lutheran Church encounters, things that Gerberding mentions, things that we still struggle with today, like how do we practice closed communion, they really only make sense if you think of the pastor as having responsibility for your soul in the way that the doctor does for your body. If you don't think of him that way and or if he doesn't think of himself that way, a lot of things that the Lutheran Church maintains just don't, they really just don't make any sense because the Lutheran Church presumes everywhere in its confessions and its history that the pastor is actually a pastor and not just, you know, a good public speaker or a nice guy. Yeah, and and when a pastor visits, he's not there just to he's not the tax man, he's or the census taker either. He's not there just merely to inspect and to gather data. He's there sincerely to help the member and to aid them um in whatever that need may be. I mean, and he's there to guide them. Um, it, it isn't just it isn't for the sake of just, you know, making check marks on a tally sheet somewhere. That's right. Yeah. He's not there, you know, to punish. He's there to use the law and the gospel to guide the soul into the pastures that God has for that soul to feed upon. And, you know, maybe he's going to have to say some words that are hard to swallow. It just depends on the situation. But he needs the freedom to do that. And he needs to make himself available to do that. So, yeah, visitation, absolutely essential for Gerberding. I think also absolutely essential for us today. Now, a lot of these questions of visitation and examination and that sort of thing uh, really bring up the specter of church discipline. But nevertheless, church discipline is... (laughs) Is is the domain yeah. of the pastor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ghost, the ghost that haunts us. <laughs> right. Yeah, church discipline. Basically, people associate that. Let's be honest with bad situations. When you bring up church discipline, when we think discipline, we think bad, and I think that's very telling. That discipline is for us a bad word, whereas scripturally, discipline is a good word. 
the father chastises the son whom he loves. Uh, if you don't discipline your kids, you, you must hate them scripturally. If you spare the rod, you really are spoiling your child, meaning you're letting him go to seed. You're letting what would otherwise be fruitful become fruitless. So discipline is a sign that you love in the same way that someone who cares for his lawn is trimming and mowing and cleaning up. That's his discipline on his lawn. The discipline that the church exercises is its care for its people. And that's obviously going to be exercised chiefly through the governor of the church, as the, you know, the early Western church would put it, the rector of the church. That's going to be exercised through the pastor, yeah. chiefly. Now, if you're getting, we can talk about excommunication, that's going to be done with the consent of the church. But most disciplined things like what needs to be said or can this person take or not take communion right now? Those are within the purview, the normal purview of the pastor as he carries out uh, his tasks. Sure. And yeah, then there is the case, you know, with excommunication, public trial witnesses, everything, you know, according according to the scriptures and in, and in good order. Yeah. And Ger- Gerberding does envision real trials. The idea that if Matthew 18 is carried out, which he understands to be a procedural mandate of the Lord, if that's carried out and the person refuses to repent, at the end of that process is a real trial. So when Jesus says, tell it to the church, Gerberding is envisioning the charges brought, the case is made, the defense presents its defense, witnesses may be called if need be, and a decision is rendered. He does not specify an agency for the church court. I know that even in some places to this day, and certainly in the history of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the court has at times been the elders. It has at other times been the voters' assembly more broadly. That just sort of depends on your polity. Uh, but their idea is that the pastor with the congregation jointly issue some kind of binding decision prior to the right of excommunication being carried out sure. on somebody who is yeah. openly unrepentant. Good stuff. So we've got a lot, to, lot, of, lot of meat here to really chew on. And one of the things really briefly um, is the pastor at the altar how he ought to conduct himself. It's a really succinct section, really, but really quite uh, one of these obvious yet somehow profound uh, things that need to be said here. So the pastor at the altar, what should what should worship look like, according to Gerberding? I think if you're listening to this and you are in a congregation where the Lutheran liturgy is not generally being used or it's being used sort of in part in combination with things that are non-liturgical, Gerberding can be really helpful because he suggests that the service should always be liturgical and it should be the common service which is the common English service of the Lutheran Church in America. Missouri Synod Lutherans would know it as Divine Service 3 at this point in history. But where that is not currently present, the liturgy should be introduced gradually. And it should be done so that eventually what the church has is a service which binds it to other churches of its confession and has a regularity to it. Right. For Gerberding, he wants he wants uniformity and it's a slow process towards unity. That's the ultimate goal there. It is, yeah, and you're not you're not forcing anything on people, but you are gradually showing them that this will be best for their spiritual life to have this service, which unites them with so many people, past and present. Well, let's talk a little bit then about um, the other um, really important work of the pastor, the administration of the sacraments. 
and uh, particularly baptism. Yeah, baptism, as as any you know, ardent American um, similar to Gerberding would know, is very controversial in America, and uh, Gerberding is very concerned that you not fall off the horse on either side. So he knows that baptism is constantly subject, especially infant baptism, is subject to attacks by Baptists and other groups in America that believe it's ungodly to baptize infants. But he also wants to protect baptism from what he calls Lutheran superstition, which is that baptism is, in his phrase, a kind of bodily charm. Like, once you're baptized, like, nothing bad could ever happen to you again, certainly not spiritually. Right, it's a, it's a totem. It's, it's, it's a totem, and once you go through it, you're fine, which is really to recapitulate within the Lutheran Church what, unfortunately, we say in the Lutheran Confessions the Roman Catholic Church teaches. So he's clear that baptism should be should be done uh, for infants and for adults in the same manner, but that baptism, apart from the teaching of God's word to the family of the infant and throughout the child's life as he grows, if teaching is divorced from baptism, we really have turned it into another superstition. Very good. Um, the next uh, rite would be confirmation. Yeah, confirmation, he's really not that big on, to be honest. He doesn't have the historical data that we now do that, you know, Lutherans um, basically abolished confirmation at the beginning of the Reformation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he does know from his own experience that it's a legacy of what he calls state churchism, where it's basically just graduating to being an adult. So he's very concerned that the pastor used the small catechism in confirmation instruction but that the primary point of confirmation is to make sure that the confirmand is actually a regenerate Christian. He is not simply going through the motions, is not simply there because his grandparents and his parents have been Lutherans. And so he's got to go through the rites of the Lutheran church too. So the pastor must make sure that all of his confirmands have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And then lastly, we're going to have communion. Yeah, and this is really for the benefit or, you know, at least food for thought, maybe, of our audience. Gerberding is aware that in the early church, communion was generally weekly, as in many places in the Lutheran church. Now it is. In his own day, it's not at all normal for weekly communion to exist. But there are people in his time that are suggesting, oh, you should have weekly communion. This is a great blessing. He says that might have been okay in the early church, but they were much stronger Christians. He thinks that because the faith is very weak in his own time, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, people are not prepared to receive the body and blood of Christ because they are very, they're thoughtless, they're lazy, they're lacking in fervency. So he thinks that they're simply not ready for weekly communion. It's an interesting perspective, if nothing else. I think we generally just assume that everyone should have weekly communion at this point. So it's it's kind of fun to read a very much opposing viewpoint. Well, and, you know, at the heart of it is something that we can't agree upon. It's the um, necessity of preparation for communion. And really, we've lost a little bit of that. We, we've, you know, we, we, we try to recover, you know, the discipline, the Christian you know, the discipline of the Christian life, as it were. And we it's not been too long ago that we had the tradition of announcing for communion or calling for communion. But w- what has happened with communion is it's become seen as something of an entitlement, something that is purely personal uh, between, you know, a, a decision 
totally of the individual Christian without any counsel from the pastor. And for Gerberding, an essential part of these visitations is examining uh, for the sake of communion or knowing his, his congregations well enough that he could warn them or welcome them, you know, as the need may be. Yeah, Gerberding does assume that whether it's private confession and absolution or a simple announcement, the pastor is aware beforehand of every single person who will be communing, and he knows their spiritual state. He presumes that. Right, and he goes right back to the visitation thing. It's Visitation is necessary for many reasons, including this one. That's right, yeah. Does a shepherd know his sheep? Of course he does, and a good shepherd ought to. And again, it's it's this it's this privatization of religion that we keep that we keep coming back to, and really, it's a greater question than the frequency or infrequency of communion, which we typically focus on. But preparedness for communion is something uh, worth discussing as well and worth contemplating, at least for pastors and, and church bodies or, or congregations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true because we usually we usually talk about weekly communion as simply having a ritual that we don't otherwise have or we would have less frequently. But I think if you simply add rituals within the church without the spiritual care and preparation that makes those rituals worthwhile, meaningful, spiritually profitable, you're just at, you really are just adding time to the service, as some people will accuse you of if you want to go to weekly communion where you don't already have it. So I think Without that oversight, without that proclamation of the word, without that call to repentance, it is possible to commune. It's very much possible to commune without profit um, and and potentially to your own judgment. Sure. So let's cover these just really quick. Uh, marrying and burying. Yeah, marrying, Gerberding, to make some intervention in current debates about marriage, Gerberding assumes that marriage is a legitimate interest of the state such that the pastor may refuse to marry somebody that the state says it's okay for them to get married. So the state may have lax divorce laws, which are more lax than scripture. The pastor is, for instance, not free to marry, to marry people who have been divorced on other than scriptural grounds or to marry the guilty party in a divorce on scriptural grounds. So he actually says the guilty party may not be remarried by a Christian pastor. The state obviously doesn't care about that, but he may not marry where the state forbids it. Right. I mean, this would be something that, you know, would not be popular today. And another thing would be his approach to funerals. For him, funerals in the church are exclusively for Christians, and uh, burial is really the only option uh, for disposing of, of a Christian body. That's correct. Yeah, he's very much against cremation, which is uh, an issue in his time. It's particularly an issue in Pennsylvania, where the nation's first two funeral crematoria were built. He is okay with doing a funeral in a home or a funeral parlor for a non-Christian, but he explicitly says, you know, I'm going to adapt the service. We're not making any statements about the eternal destiny of the deceased. Um, It's simply an opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel to a group of people. But burial out of the church is only for Christians. Right. So the last thing we're going to spend our final few moments on uh, is something that we can really relate to, where we see that Gerberding's context is not entirely different from our own. And that's why we need pastoral care and who needs pastoral care. We need pastoral care, especially because Lutheranism is maybe one of the least obvious or natural things for an American to profess. 
it's difficult even for people who are born and raised Lutherans in the United States, simply because we are not culturally cocooned as the Lutheran Church was in almost every place that it came from to America from Europe. It had generally state church protections and generally, you know, a monopoly, a religious monopoly within its territory. You come to America, that doesn't exist. So in America, the private visitation of people in the congregation or potential members of the congregation is absolutely necessary to retain them, um, to explain uh, their beliefs to them, to explain the church's practices to them, to make sure that they understand what they're about and what the church is about, to keep them aligned with what the Luther- Lutheran church is doing in proclaiming the gospel. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about zeal, and it's a zeal for your own people, but it's also a zeal for those who are not part of God's flock. And so there is a certain level of pastoral care and concern for those outside of the church, and those people ought to be visited too in different contexts and for different reasons. But what that's what what would that look like? I mean, even in our day. Yeah. It looks like the pastor actually devoting significant amounts of his time, not only to visiting members, checking up on them, but actually blocking out time in the same way that he does for sermon preparation, you know, the, the sort of maintenance of the church's ongoing life. He's also going to block out time to have friendships, to cultivate relationships with people who are not Christians. And he's doing that for a twofold reason. One is obviously to gain those people for Christ. The other reason is to set an example for his members that the primary business of the church is not to have chicken dinners. It's not to have as many things on the calendar as possible at the church. It's for the church to carry the gospel to the world, to bring the world under the saving influence of Jesus Christ. So he's going to be blocking out time to do that himself. And you do want to get people in. That's true. You know, there, there is, that is natural. You want to have things to try to get people in the church doors. However, you cannot neglect the going out part of, of the pastoral work. That's right. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it's supremely awkward. I mean, if you're knocking on doors, and we can argue about the effectiveness of that or not, but people are going to be uncomfortable. You're going to get associated with Mormons or whatever. Or if you strike up anything approaching a spiritual conversation at the auto parts store or in line at the grocery store or something, it's going to be awkward. Or if someone if someone has a friend um, and they want you to call on them in a pastoral capacity, again, it's going to be an awkward thing for a lot of people and, and indeed a daunting task. And uh, what do we say uh, to someone who is uncomfortable with this sort of thing? We have to we have to just say that you you have to get over the awkwardness. Once you do it, once you bring it up, once you broach the subject, you know, you're going to have a sense of when it is possible to do this. You're not going to walk right up to the person that's, you know, throwing his cans of Mountain Dew onto, <laughs> you know, the conveyor belt at the grocery store and say like, "What are you going to do about your sin when you die?" You know, he's not he's not ready for that question right then. But with some modicum of tact, you're going to get over the difficulty of having these conversations in a society in which everything is privatized, including spiritual beliefs. And you're just going to do it. You're just going to let it fly. And it's going to be profitable. And people are going to be far more open talking about it once they realize you actually care about them. You're going to be surprised by how interested people are in these matters. 
Right. We we sort of hear the sort of recurring meme of, of about introverts. And, well, most pastors are introverts or blah, blah, blah. I can't do this because I'm an introvert or something like that. But it goes back to uh, the first uh, podcast where Gerberding talks about the skill set necessary. And really, conversational skills or communication skills are something that don't come naturally to everybody, but they're something that has to be honed by the pastor within himself. Yeah, I mean, I'm an introvert too. I mean, this stuff, you know, this stuff exhausts me. I'm probably going to have to, you know, hide for two days after being on this podcast. But, you know, I mean, it's it's just what has to be done. The gospel is not spread through silence. It's spread through preaching. And preaching extends to conversations that you have with friends and family and everything like that. So it simply, simply has to be done. We can't neglect it. To neglect it is to say that we hate the people to whom we refuse to preach the gospel. We hate them. We refuse to make known to them that Jesus is their salvation. Uh, if we love them at all, we will tell them about Jesus. If, if you see someone drop money out of their purse, nine out of 10 people are going to go, and certainly Christians are going to go, hey, ma'am, you dropped this. If you saw someone leave their baby carriage on top of a car at the gas station and they pull away, you're going to try to stop any harm from coming to that child, you're going to try to warn the parent. And it's very similar with evangelism. It's very simple with, uh, it's very similar with witnessing because these are very real consequences here. Questions of election, things like that aside, there is an urgency to the task and there are real consequences. And whether that person's going to believe or not isn't, isn't up to our eloquence. But at the same time, the pastor is given this task. You must bear witness to the truth that is within you. And what is the consequence? You're looking at this person knowing that if they don't believe and don't know and don't hear, there is only one destination for them, only one option ultimately, and that is eternal perdition. And ultimately, you're not loving your neighbor. Maybe just to put it in a a nutshell, we can't make an idol um, out of our introversion. We can't allow our own needs to become some sort of idolatry, but we have to recognize that, yes, it is hard work, and yes, we will have to do things that make us uncomfortable, but it is the task that we have been set to do. Amen. And with that, we're going to give Zelwyn the last word. Amen. <laughs> you are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Like what you hear, check us out. Wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or follow us at Twitter at wordfitly. Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you. It's been fantastic. Thanks to our listeners. God love you and God bless. <laughs>